Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 315 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Peter Watts. He holds a PhD in zoology and resource ecology from the University of British Columbia and is the author of many books, including the novel Starfish, Blindsight, and Echopraxia, and the short story collection Ten Monkeys, Ten Minutes. And we'll be speaking with him today about his novel The Freeze Frame Revolution and his short story collection Beyond the Rift. And now here's our interview with Peter Watts. All right, so we're here with Peter Watts. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Okay, and so your new book is called The Freeze Frame Revolution. So how'd this book come about? Um, well, I was, uh, the, the short answer is that uh, uh, Jacob Wiseman from Tachyon had been approaching me for a couple of years to do a novella. Um, the long answer is that I've been writing a series of interconnected stories set in something I'm calling the Sunflower uh, Universe, which basically uh, describes the billions-year-long voyage of this hollowed-out asteroid uh, whose job is to essentially create jump gates uh, for whatever post-human beings come along uh, in its wake. It is kind of my my response to all those lazy writers who, who sort of get around the light speed barrier by postulating that the ancients or the progenitors or whatever we're calling them this week uh, conveniently let, built these giant uh, interstellar super highways, and then just went extinct, leaving us with all their best toys to play with. Hmm. Uh, and uh, and I, I thought, you know, what about the poor bastards who had to go out and build those things in the first place? Like, they didn't have any jump gates to make life easy for them. So I've, I've done this series of stories, essentially, set on such a ship. And the premise, of course, is that there as a human, there is a human component to the crew. And you know, for, for simply for dramatic reasons, but you also have to explain why humans are even necessary, why the whole thing isn't automated. So we have an artificial stupidity called the chimp who has been deliberately hobbled uh, because people have learned that if you make AIs too smart, they become unpredictable. So you have a predictable AI that can handle most builds on its own, uh, but because it's predictable and because it's dumb and because it's a chimp, every now and then it runs into something it can't handle on its own, so it thaws out part of a human contingent. And as part of these other stories, I'd mentioned just sort of offhandedly that a few million years back there had been a mutiny which the chimp had shut down by shutting off everyone's air. And I wasn't planning on doing much with that. It was just a, a little bit of backstory to try and establish the sort of Cold War detente that had been going on for a few billion years. Um... And then when Jacob decided that he wanted me to write this novella, I suddenly realized that you actually don't just launch a mutiny against something which, no matter how dumb, still has thousands of years to brute force its way through every scenario, which has direct cortical links into your eyes and your ears, which decides who gets to wake up and when. How do you, how do you even plan a mutiny under those circumstances, uh, much less pull one off? Uh, so that seemed like a little bit more than a short story. So I decided to make a novella out of it. And just to, to set this up a little bit more. So yeah, you so see, you have this ship going through space for millions of years, built, leaving behind these sort of hyperspace gates and the crew 
gets woken up. What how like uh, the average person is is awake? What like a day or two every thousand years or something like that? Every um, you know maybe three three days to a couple of weeks. If they're building a big nest of gates, if they're building a nexus, they might be uh, awake for for months at a time. Um, but in most cases, yeah, they're just they spend ninety nine point nine 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 percent of their lives stuck in cold storage. Uh, the ship's ecosystems are these sort of weird black light forests that, that generate maybe enough oxygen for an ant colony in real time. But given most of the crew is asleep for thousands of years at a time, you can sort of amortize your oxygen debt. Um, and yeah, most, so, so basically what you have is somebody with what I'm going to call a normal 22nd century lifespan, which I'm going to put up to somewhere 150 or 200 years. Um, living their life in these thin microtome slices as the universe unwinds around them in stop motion. Uh, and uh, the arc that I'm anticipating will basically take us about two-thirds of the way to heat death. And so part of the reason that they want to mutiny is because they've had no contact with the with Earth, with the civilization that sent them out in the first place. And in fact, the things that they see using these gates behind them bear no resemblance to humans as they knew them and sometimes seem like scary monsters? Um, well, they pretty much had to expect that, right? I mean, look how far we've come in, uh, in just the past 50,000 years. Uh, they had to be expecting some kind of, of, uh, of post-human evolution. Um, the thing, though, is that you're dealing with human beings who, although they have been genetically engineered for the mission, although they have been not only have they been programmed for the mission, but their parents were programmed for the mission just to so that so that they would be raised right. Um, the whole thing that gives the human component value is a certain unpredictability and initiative that the chimp lacks. So you can't completely weed the seeds of rebellion out of the system if you want the system to function as intended. And... As a result of that, given that you actually have a, uh, a population of 30,000 corpsicles, at some point, one of them, just through the basic laws of statistics, is going to snap and start something. Yeah. Yeah. And so what do you think of this idea of the pur purposely engineering the AI to be dumb? Because um, this is something that the initial creators of this mission put into place to try to keep the mission from going off the rails? Because they say it's, if the AI is too smart, you can't predict what it's going to do. Uh, do you think that keeping it dumb, is that, um, is that a scenario that AI designers should be uh, looking at to, in the future? Are, are you looking to me for advice and insight as to how Elon Musk should be developing actual AI? Yeah, or, or I, are we still he, in storyline? He might, he might listen to this. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think the real world um, concerns about AI, uh, although I'm, I'm, I am partial to things like uh, paperclip maximizing scenarios. The standard Skysets, Skynet scenario where an AI wakes up, becomes self-aware, and decides to rebel or humanity tries to pull the plug and Skynet fights back. I've never found that convincing uh, because 
the desire to survive, survival instincts, by definition, are things that evolved into us. They're brainstem circuits that evolved over millions of years. Um, even if an AI were to achieve sapience, I can't see any reason why it would give a rat's ass whether it lived or died. It simply wouldn't have the kind of drives that would lead one to rebel unless we were stupid enough to actually build a brainstem into the damn thing. Uh, which I guess the big blue, the brain project uh, that IBM and the Swiss are working on has sort of made inroads into doing. I guess they're basically trying to map a human brain into into silicon and software um, without really understanding how all the parts interact and just figuring if they make a good enough transcription, it, it'll wake up. Um, but I don't... I don't pretend to be any kind of an AI expert. My formal training is in biology. Um, so I, I do have certain opinions on the nature of a survival drive. Uh, and I don't see that necessarily being a part of AI architecture. In terms of the uh, getting back to fantasy land and the sunflower cycles, there actually is something called Ashby's Law of Requisite Variety, um, which sort of boiled down to its, you know, stripped away the, stripping away the numbers basically says... Uh, that you can't fit a larger box inside a smaller one. Uh, once you reach a certain number of variables, things become unpredictable. And that is something that I think we have to worry about. Um, if a lemur builds a human being, uh, the lemur is not going to be able to, no matter how many safety constraints it builds in, it's just not going to be able to cognitively understand all the possible things that the human being it builds could do. Um, and yeah, the most parsimonious way of getting around that problem is to build something that's dumber than a lemur. Uh, so, so that's the, that's the strategy I took. I mean, I can, I can back rationalize it until the cows come home. Um, of course, the real reason narratively is that if I'd simply told the story of an immortal von Neumann machine without <laughs> any, uh, without any characters or, or antagonists to play off with, it would be a hell of a boring epic. And it's already going on for like 8 billion years as it is. So I needed something to spice it up. <laughs> I thought in the, the afterward, you say uh, this is set so very far in the future that pretty much everything's hands wavium anyway, which I thought was funny. But it's, it's, it's great, A, hands wavium. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in this that feels like real science. Uh, I mean, a lot. Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, my... Because my formal background um, is in is in science, and, and because I have to, you know, still contend, I came up from that generation that basically regards anybody who reads this science fiction stuff as like one step up from child molesters. Uh, I try to retain some shred of empirical credibility um, by uh, backloading most of my novels with with all of my novels, I guess, with actual lists of technical citations from the peer-reviewed literature, going into the science behind, it's kind of my shtick, going into the science behind the story. Um, and it's actually proven helpful to a lot of people. People have told me that they've checked out the references and it's, it's educated them in various ways. Basically, I'm just trying to cover my ass against nitpickers. You know, if somebody says that, 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 uh, I've got my head up my ass, I can always say, well, hey, it's not me you're arguing with. It's this guy who published in Nature. So go take it up <laughs> with him. Um, compared to that, freeze frame revolution is pure hand wavian. Um, because I break physics. I mean, the whole idea of stargates itself are, are these, these things are not, I mean, in Maelstrom, I, 
I uh, basically stopped the plot dead and almost killed the book with a two-page synopsis on how this alien microorganism could get by the the plasma membrane by using receptor-mediated endocytosis uh, without triggering immune responses on the part of the cell. Um, Again, as a pure act of self-defense against scientists who would probably never be caught dead reading my stuff anyway. Uh, So... That's what I compare it to when I say it's hand-wavium. I'm, I'm kind of surprised and gratified to see some of the reviewers saying, oh, yes, this is the hardest of hard SF. Um, so so that's, you know, and I have, there is this dude, Peter Lorraine, who has his name on about half the laser patents um, in the patent office, as far as I can tell. He, he liked some of my other stuff. And one of the cool things about being an author is that when somebody who has some kind of qualification sends you a fan letter, you can say, hey, if you like me that much, let me pick your brain for the next story. Uh, so that's what I did with this guy. And um, so I, I fielded him this story about, uh, or this this article in the, in the archives about possi- the possibility of black hole starships. And Iriophora isn't anything like the black hole starships described in this um in this this paper I fed him, but a lot of the laser physics and so on were 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 comparable. You could port them from one scenario to the other, and uh, and he came up with some really awesome ideas. I also happen to have a lot of friends who are very conversant in computer science, um, so we could play around with a lot of of the things that might limit the AI. Uh, so I still, I mean, I did my work, um, and it's easy to do your work when when you know, the computer scientist you're consulting with likes to drink beer and lives in the same town. And so you go out and you basically get sozzled for a couple of nights and come away with some really cool ideas if only you can remember what they are the next day. Um, so that's what I did. But this is not a book that has an annotated bibliography at the end of it, which is a departure for me and, and which I suppose drops my stuff down into the realm of airy-fairy fantasy. I mean, there was this thing about how, you know, you think about mass as being a liability for a starship, but somehow this starship, it needs a lot of mass. And so there's something about the, the Higgs field being decoupled and, and somehow it, it falls forward from, I, I don't know, what was the kind of rationale? Yeah, it was, I mean, that's all, that's all pure rabbit out of the hat stuff. That's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Um, it's, it's my take on a reactionless drive. If you, I figure, uh, you ever played Portal? You must have played Portal. Yeah, yeah, the video game. And the idea that this Portal, um, it it carries everything, right? It carries mass, it carries momentum. Um, so I figured, okay, this is going to be it's going to be this kind of a wormhole. You take a center of mass, you extend a wormhole out of it, and if it's a black hole that's your center of mass, that's easy because black holes tend to do that. You extend your center of mass out, and you have the wormhole open just a little bit ahead of you. So now what you have is a center of mass that's kind of the compromise vector between where the actual singularity is and where the wormhole opens, because the Higgs field that carries the gravity has also been sort of smeared out that way, too. So what you have is a center of gravity that's a little bit ahead of the center of gravity. So the asteroid falls in that direction. Um, and 
the real problem at that point is because it's falling at a it's it's a reactionless drive. You don't have to worry about fuel constraints. It falls at a constant rate, so eventually it hits light speed. And then, of course, what happens is just the interstellar hydrogen that it rams into melts the entire asteroid. So I figured you couldn't go faster than about 20% light speed before that happened. So you can tell, but what I'm doing now is I'm throwing up all sorts of technobabble, and I'm talking about blue-shifted interstellar hydrogen, and I'm talking about Higgs conduits and, and smeared uh, centers of gravity. Um, and it kind of works intuitively, but in terms of the pure physics, it's all bullshit. I, I don't think this could, you know, it's it's... If it's something that could happen, it pro people would probably be working on it by now. Yeah, but I feel like with a lot of this stuff, uh, people read it and they may say, oh, that's bullshit. It would actually be like this. And and then it gets them thinking about, you know, but if, if they're not reading this kind of science fiction, maybe they wouldn't be going in these directions. Their thoughts wouldn't be going in these directions in the first place. That's true. I mean, there's a perfect example that one of the computer science guys I talked to, he's not formally a computer science guy. He's more or less self um, educated. His name's uh, Ray Nielsen, and he's. I, I mentioned him in my acknowledgments. Um, and he sent me some really interesting papers, essentially about wormholes and the problem with um, information transfer at faster than life speeds, and how this would violate relativity, and and how, in fact, what we know about wormholes um, wouldn't let them do that. You can't get outside your own light cone. And then he suggested, just call it a non-relativistic wormhole. And that basically implies that we've come up with a new kind of wormhole so far, at least as of, as of 2018, unknown to physics. And man, that paper's over a multitude of sins. <laughs> it both, it both recognizes, like it's, it's basically a nod to anybody who cares that, yeah, I know I'm breaking the rules. This is my workaround. But it's not such an inglorious info dump that people who really couldn't give a shit about the nature of the drive aren't going to be distracted or slowed down. Non-relativistic wormholes, it's such a, a short, concise, non-plot-stopping term that I can throw in for those who, who would think of such things, but which doesn't interfere with the flow of the plot otherwise. Um I really should do that more often. It's it's a very uh, Heisenberg compensator sort of idea. Yeah, yeah, very very Heisenberg compensator ish. <laughs> um. So so how about the actual black hole starships that somebody was proposing? How would though? Could you give us a quick uh, explanation of of how that might actually work? Oh man. Okay. This is your fault because as part of the boot up for this interview, you suggested yes, shut down all your. You know, Skype works best if you shut down all your background things. I could actually bring up the the paper, but that would involve booting up my PDF reader and so on. Um, this is what I'm going to tell you from memory. Uh, and that is that these starships were not, they didn't use wormholes. They didn't use um, uh, that kind of, of physics-defying magic hand-waving, hand-wavium. They simply used... Um, small black holes as a power source um to run the ships this was this was the um this was what the the model was predicated on and i'm just gonna where do we go uh -huh. where's the paper here we go um yes crane and westmoreland that's the those are the authors uh, an archive paper called are black hole starships possible for those of you who who want to check that out 
Um, I guess I could ask you first, do they conclude that it is possible? Because if the answer yes, is no, yes, then can, uh, you can say Well, they concluded time. that, I mean, they were looking at a different kind of starship. They were basically looking at a starship that used a black hole as a power source, not as a black hole that was actually used as the drive. They weren't talking about reactionless drives at all. So a lot of their calculations were more along the lines of, okay, how small can you make a black hole so that it will actually last a few hundred years and be useful? How large can you afford to make it? How do you build a black hole? And they had some really fine ideas, like the whole, I mean, everybody knows E equals MC squared. Um, but I think a lot of us haven't internalized the implications of matter and energy being interchangeable. If you have a strong enough light source, you can build matter from scratch if you can convert it. Um, so the whole idea of having to orbit the sun, sucking up photons in order to build your black hole, that's stolen from Crane and Westmoreland. Um, and so I, I could use a lot of that technology and then just port it over to my magic reactionless drive, which is, you know, just to spare them any possible compromise of their own professional <laughs> reputations. They did not say anything like that. That's entirely my you know, my magic wand. Um, but it was also good to get from that paper. You know, you, you make a black hole too small and it like, it evaporates in five seconds and soaks you with enough radiation to wipe out a solar system. So I managed to get enough physics from that to figure out how big my black hole had to be, uh, in order to, to persist, how much radiation it would put out. Um, how long it would take to create something of that size. And then I'd have to, I could work out the gradients of how much you weighed throughout various parts of the ship, depending on how far you were from the black hole. Uh, I could use real science and real physics for all of that. Um, but the drive itself, no, that's just. So, so you're, you're, when you say that you could, you could use it to generate power, you're saying you could have a black hole to power the electrical systems of the ship, but you would still need something else, some sort of other kind of reaction mass to use as propellant. Yeah. I mean, the black, the black hole would basically be the, in my story, I'm making the black hole the internal combustion engine. Crane and Westmoreland are basically making uh, the black hole the gas tank. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's interesting. There was another thing in this story. This is kind of random, but I was just curious. There's this thing about how you can skim the surface of stars uh, and experience the only place you can have true free will in the solar system. Could you talk about that? Yeah, that's um, that's from – I actually wrote a story called Hot Shot that takes place prior to the, the beginning of the Area 4 mission. Um, and it, the freeze frame revolution has a quick flashback to it but doesn't go into detail. Uh, and my, my take on that, uh, a lot of my writing, a lot of my earlier writing has to do with, with consciousness and free will and so on. And the idea that neurons are utterly reactive. Neurons do not fire except in response to a stimulus. And just using that, that fact alone should be enough to dismantle any sense of, or any, any plausibility for the idea of classic free will. We cannot do anything unless a physical system tweaks another physical system and ultimately all those inputs have to come out from outside the body. So we are reactive beings. Um, you don't have to, I mean, all the, the, Le, the Benjamin LeBay and, and the Liu et al and all those studies that show that we, we don't really have free will. You don't, those pile on the evidence. But just starting from the fact that neurons are reactive and our minds are made out of neurons, 
should be enough to, you know, pretty much destroy in theory any chance of real classic dualist free will. Um, what I imagined in my story was essentially a scam. Uh, the argument is that, yeah, you, if you, you go down and you pass through these hoops, these, these giant coronal, um, ejections that are, that are tied to sunspots. Uh, these are incredibly powerful magnetic fields. And we know that magnetic, magnetic fields can screw up brains in ways that, that they make you see things that aren't there. You can have sensed presences. Uh, some people have said that it's, it's actually, that, that those kind of responses are actually, um, the, the underlying cause of the religious, of, of religious rapture and so on. Uh, so we know that those kind of effects happen. Um, the argument, the, the, the travel brochures for industrial enlightenment are, we take you into an area where the, the magnetic fields are so incredibly intense that you've essentially decoupled cause and effect. The neurons aren't firing in response to particular sensory inputs. They're not responding in terms of a coherent network that a brain usually does. They're just firing in response to all these random magnetic fluctuations. Uh, and, and the story that, that, uh, Hotshot actually says, look, the fact that something, the fact that you roll a dice, the fact that you make your decisions on the basis of a shuffled deck of cards, the fact that you're shuffling the cards doesn't give them free will. It just introduces an element of randomness. And this is an argument that's been going back and forth in the, in the literature and in the community for a while. Um, and I didn't put too much thought into whether it was real. All I needed was, for Sunday to be sufficiently uncertain and sufficiently vulnerable that something like that, even if you look at the physics and it doesn't work, it's something that enough people would believe that they could probably make a going business concern out of it. So it's basically ecotourism on the surface of the sun with some advertising hyperbole that probably doesn't hold together, but it still does weird things to your brain. <laughs> You know, because I also read your uh, short story collection, Beyond the Rift, and there are a bunch of stories in there that deal with, as you said, the brain and using electrical stimulation to manipulate the brain in various ways. Um, so, so, for example, uh, oh, shoot, which is the story? But in one of the stories, um, you suggest that you could use some sort of electrical stimulation to change somebody's uh, brain processes, but it would be temporary that things would bounce back after six hours or something. Oh, you're thinking the eyes of God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, no, that's, that stuff's pretty much established science. Um, Sony, for example, has been quietly renewing a patent since I think 1999. I don't, I don't think they have the technology yet, but they got this kind of blue sky patent that they've been renewing, uh, that, uh, is for a proprietary technology that allows you to implant sensory input directly into the sensory cortex. We're not talking augmented reality. We're not talking VR. Uh, we're talking about bypassing all the sense organs entirely and just tweaking specific neurons in the sensory cortices remotely. Uh, and they've been selling it. They're, it's been a various iterations of it use compressed ultrasound and uh, radio signals and so on that that can just cause a neuron to fire uh, via induction effects. And they've been selling it as a, 
you know, think of the things we can do with medicine. Think of the things we can do with gaming. And I'm thinking, yeah, but you know, a neuron firing is a neuron firing, whether it's firing to convey a sensory impression or whether it's firing to convey a political belief. And so you're talking about something that you aim at the occipital cortex to induce a sense of seeing something. You turn that beam just a little bit to the right and you could also induce a, uh, a irresistible craving for a, cer a certain type of beer or a certain religious belief. Um, the mechanism, as far as I can see, is the same. And so Sony's been, this is like 20 years now, Sony's been renewing this patent. And they're not the only ones. There's a bunch of other stuff out there that's, that's, uh, I think Sony was one of the first. Um, to just sort of quietly, remotely, without having to like, drill any holes in your head, without having to use electrodes, just plant stuff into your brain. And I find that exciting and terrifying in equal measure. I mean, there's this sort of throwaway line in the story about this. A, I assume it's Richard Dawkins kind of goes through one of these machines and gets turned into a Christian. Yeah, yeah. You heard of, ever hear of a guy called um, Persinger? Uh, it's not ringing a bell offhand. He's a he's um he's a guy up at um, Laurentian University in Sudbury, up here in Canada, and he's invented something uh, called which he calls a, basically it's it's the casual term is a god helmet. And it uses transcranial magnetic stimulation to essentially tweak different parts of the brain. Um, and it has been reported, it doesn't work all the time, but it has been reported to induce sensed presences, you know, the whole, uh, one of those weird creepy feelings, the, the sort of the night terrors, the waking sense of something lurking over your shoulder that people associate with UFO abduction stories. And in some cases, religious rapture. Um, it depends on uh, it depends on the person, of course. Every brain is different, and uh, apparently Dawkins himself um, visited Laurentian and and had a go with this helmet. Um, Dawkins was his brain is too atheistically wired, I guess, for it to work. So I, I don't think it had any real impact on him. But you know, supposing it had. Yeah, I mean, it breaks down your scent. That there's there's a part of your brain you say right that. Uh, keeps track of what's you and what's not you, and this sort of breaks it down, and so you have this sense that you're kind of one with the universe? Yeah, yeah, that's one of the effects. I mean, let's face it, squirting high um, high quantities of, of electromagnetic force at a brain can have all sorts of impacts and a whole bunch of things. But there is a part of a brain that essentially is responsible for boundaries, uh, proprioception and so on. And this com this incredibly cosmic sense of being one with the universe is not a metaphor. It becomes literally true because you literally lose track of where you end and everything else begins. You seem to essentially be part of this extended cosmos. Um, have you ever have you ever done LSD or anything along those lines? I have not. There are these weird... I've only done it once. But there was this weird and disconcerting sense of one's consciousness becoming kind of this weird, diffuse neural net spread across the ceiling. It's it's hard to describe. Um, 
in terms of the subjective experience, but it's trivially easy to describe in terms of the brain chemistry. I mean, you have this story, flesh-made word, where there's a whole religion has sprung up around the sort of quote-unquote provable contact with God. Uh, that's not flesh-made word. That's, geez, what is that? That's uh, a word for heathens. Oh, sorry. Oh. Flesh-made word was a rather overwrought story that I'm not especially proud of, and I don't really know why Jacob insisted on sticking that in the collection, except maybe to keep me humble, <laughs> um, about a guy obsessing over his dead cat and his dead wife. Um, and, and it was okay back in like 1989 or something when I, when I wrote it. Um, you're thinking about, um, yeah, word a word for heathens. Right. It's a, it's a, essentially it's a, a parallel timeline story. Um, Moses had his, had his, according to myth, had his religious conversion when he saw the burning bush. And so I started playing around with the idea. So what if this burning bush was a real thing, right? He was up in the mountains of Sinai. What if he encountered some kind of a weird magnetic anomaly that actually did to him what Persinger's God helmet does to people? Kind of a crude version. And what if Emperor Constantine, who was the first Roman emperor to embrace Christianity, albeit for his own political reasons, um, what if Constantine basically sent a field team out into the hills to try and find the burning bush? And they found the damn thing because it wasn't a bush at all. It was a geomagnetic anomaly. And they found the damn thing in like 300 AD. Think of the kind of technological leaps that would occur with that kind of a phenomena that could be replicated. You could stick people in front of it. You could study it. Um, so what I essentially imagined was that by the year 1000 AD or thereabouts, uh, the Roman Empire would not have fallen and it would have developed, um, massively sophisticated, um, electronic and magnetic technologies based on this one seminal discovery of, of Moses burning bush. And at the same time, they would be able to induce religious belief to such, to such an extent that it doesn't require faith anymore. You just know. Uh, people can know things that are absolutely absurd. People can know for a fact that they're dead, that they're rotting. There are cases of, it's called Cotard syndrome. And there are clinical cases of people who demand to be buried because their hearts have stopped beating. And this is not something that you can argue with them. There are cases of people who believe that their legs have been grafted on from somebody else, that somebody else's leg is attached to them. They keep trying to cut off their own legs. There was one woman in France back in the 70s who went for 13 months thinking that she could see when she was blind. Um, and every time she bumped into something, she would, she would blame somebody for moving the furniture without telling her, or she would say she was distracted by a bird she saw through the window. As far as anyone can tell, she was simply recycling old visual data, um, so that her internal model of the, of the visual world just wasn't being updated. It was being recycled. But people know the most absurd things on a gut level that's completely unquestioned. Um, so believing in an invisible sky fairy, especially when you've got a little bit of electronic help, um, 
is not really implausible at all. In fact, if you look around, you'll find that it's an affliction that 85% of the human race adheres to. It seems from reading this story that you know a lot about Christianity. Would you say that you would you say that's true? There's a lot of just a lot of history and quotes from the Bible and so on in the story. I was um, my dad uh, founded something called the Baptist Leadership Training School back before I was born, and he was its principal for um, 22 years until he got promoted and he became the general secretary of the Baptist Convention of Ontario and Quebec. Um, and that's what he was until he, until he retired prior, prior to both of those things. He was just an itinerant Baptist minister. Um, so yeah, he had a, and you know, he had a, a doctorate of divinity and he had a master's in, in theology. And so on. he, he, he was, he was, uh, he was not one of your fire and brimstone types. Uh, he was a fairly erudite biblical scholar. And I think maybe he felt that his greatest mistake in his later years was to be so convinced in the truth of his beliefs that he encouraged me to ask questions. Whatever questions I liked, nothing was off limits. And I, I believe he was, he had such faith in the, in the validity of his own religious belief that he just knew that if I kept asking honest questions, ultimately I would come to the same answer that he did. And I don't think he ever really understood how that didn't work out. Um, he, he was a complicated guy. He was also, he was also gay in a time when uh, fundamentalist Baptist ministers are not supposed to be gay. And, and he didn't even tell us that until um, we rescued him from being beaten up by his wife for like the eighth time. And he finally, said, this is, you know, what I am, and this is why your upbringing has been so screwed up. And, and uh, you know, he's he basically trying to take, he was trying to take a lot of the blame onto himself. Um, and so in hindsight, his, his erudition and his refusal to judge people um, and his ability to consider alternatives uh, made a lot of sense and, and was a bit self-serving. But yeah, I learned, I learned a fair bit about, um, uh, the Bible and, and the historicity of that time. I, you know, he taught me about the Nicene creeds and he taught me about, about, uh, there's certain things he did not teach me about. Um, oddly enough, I had to learn about the Old Testament from Robert Heinlein. <laughs> reading Stranger in a Strange Land. And that was when I, wait a second, this loving God was like sending bears down from the mountain to tear children up because one of them had, had criticized or had, had made fun of somebody's hairstyle. That seems pretty harsh. Um, and then of course there was Leviticus, which talked about the abomination that is homosexuality. Dad not only didn't tell me about that, he didn't actually seem to know about it. Um, but yeah, I probably got a better religious background than most. You can probably edit out all the stuff I've said right after that last. I know more. I've got better religious background than most. And that will probably sum it up. No, I mean, that's interesting because, yeah, I saw in your bio that you that your your dad was this minister, uh, minister and so on. Um, so I was kind of curious about that. Yeah, but I also was kind of curious reading um, the story of the second coming of Jasmine Fitzgerald. Uh, you mentioned this guy, Frank Tipler. Uh, yeah. And I was assuming that was 
part of the fiction, uh, and I just Googled it, and it, it and it's I, I'm kind of surprised it's real. But um, could you talk about how you came across that? Well, Tipler wrote this book called, um, and and Tipler was not a he's not a flake. By most, I mean he's he's uh, he works uh, his especially his global cosmology. He's co-authored stuff with Stephen Hawking. Um, he's got a a shitload of peer-reviewed papers to his name. Um, last I checked, he was a professor down at Tulane in, uh, university in, in, uh, New Orleans. Um, and he came up with something called the Amiga point theory, which he claimed to be a testable scientific hypothesis for the existence of the Judeo Christian God. And I read this book of his because, I mean, who's not going to read a book that says, yeah, we have now subsumed religion into physics. Religion is now a branch of physics. And the, it was very difficult. The appendices were actually about twice as long as the actual text. And he was just full of, of Hilbert spaces and manifolds and equations with integral signs and partial differentials that I could not begin to understand. So even accepting this guy's conclusions constituted a major act of religious faith on my own part anyway. But as far as I could make out, as far as anyone could make out, his argument is that basically, computationally, there will be at the end of time, and this was, it's, it's obvious in hindsight why this would not work, there would be a big crunch at the end of time and all of matter would collapse into this supermassive black hole. And there would be an infinite amount of, a subjectively infinite amount of energy at the event horizon of this black hole. And there would be enough computational power to trivially reconstruct. He called it an emulation, not a simulation, because a simulation is lower res than reality. But this he called an emulation because it would reconstruct right down to the subatomic level everything that had ever happened in time up to that point, in addition to a near infinite number of alternative scenarios, uh, parallel universes, if you will. And his argument was that God was essentially this massive supercomputer perched on the event horizon of a supermassive black hole at the end of time, who would find it trivially easy to resurrect everything that had ever been resurrected. And then you read a little more of what he's saying, and he spends like three pages talking about how incredibly beautiful women would be in the afterlife, and how he came up with this formula to explain how, you know, the maximum amount of sexiness that a woman could have without short-circuiting a male sur um, uh, central, central uh, nervous system through sheer jismatic overload. And that <laughs> computationally, you would be able to sustain a woman that was 10 times that attractive in this afterlife. And it, it gradually kind of started to dawn on me that the reason that Tipler was going on so much about the afterlife was because he was obviously not getting out at all in this one. And I have to admit it kind of, <laughs> kind of soured me on the, um, on the credibility of the man. Um, and, and his, you know, his theory has not, um, 
stood the test of time very well because for an example now we know that as far as we can tell the universe is accelerating as an expansion it's not going to it's not going to recollapse um but the cool thing about it was that it was a testable hypothesis uh one of the predictions was that the higgs boson would would have a particular uh, mass value and so he he came up with this list of things that would have to be true and that physics would uncover over the next 20 years for the omega point theory um to not be rejected and that is the very nature of science it was a testable hypothesis and and so far every one of the tests has been failed um so that makes it a wrong hypothesis but not an untestable one not a non-scientific one uh, the mere fact that it was falsified is because it was a scientific hypothesis so you know, I wasn't the only one. Everybody and their dog was writing stories about Tipler's, you know, supercomputer at the end of time. All I did with uh, Jasmine Fitzgerald was say, okay, regardless of what's going on out there in the bigger universe, if there is, in fact, a supercomputer in some context that's reconstructing realities, who's to say we're not in one? This was, you know, before I'd read Dennett. This was before the the whole are we in a simulation stuff had really sort of taken off and long before the Matrix. Um but okay, if we're in a model, then maybe we can rewrite it. And I actually was kind of pissed off when The Matrix came out because it was much more accessible and it made much more money than the <laughs> second coming of Jasmine Fitzgerald, which appeared in some dick-ass Canadian anthology that nobody's ever heard of. Well, I mean, I, I have to admit, I kind of like this idea that in the future, life will coalesce into this quantum computer and it's going to rebuild all of history and everything. But it seems like Tipler is using this to... Um, sort of argue for the truth of Christianity. And I don't see what this has to do, that this, this serves that in any way. You know, it's like, oh, there's this, there's going to be this quantum computer at the end of time. It's going to simulate all of reality. And it doesn't want you to be gay. That's very important. Like, there's just no... I did not realize it didn't want you to be gay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what that, what is that, the connection? That didn't show up in... Um, yeah, no. Oh, I, oh, are you saying are you saying that that, that, that was one of the, no, the no. postulates of the Amiga... Point theory? No, no. I'm saying that how do you, like all this stuff? You can like, call it God, but it bears no resemblance to the doctrinal God that you would get from reading Scripture, right? Yeah. the The reason he could, the reason he described it as a Judeo Christian God was because it was talking about the resurrection of the dead. In fact, I think that's the subtitle of the book: God, Physics, and the Resurrection of the Dead. And and his interpretation was not that heaven is some spiritual, ethereal, other other dimensional plane but that the Bible was literally talking about the physical resurrection of the dead in an emulated reality at the end of time. And that's fundamentally different. You know, the, the Abrahamic religions are fundamentally different in this regard uh, from the Dharmic religions. So, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't going to call it a, a Hindu god. It had to be Judeo-Christian just because of that vision of heaven. Um, I, I'm pretty sure the Omega point um, theory didn't have any um, anything to say one way or the other about uh, gender identity. Um, yeah, no, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't imagine that it's it. Although, like I guess I had never even heard of it until I read your story. So I, 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 I do get the sense. I do get the sense that that uh, Tipler may have been motivated by, um, or maybe I'm getting him mixed up with uh, Kurzweil. People who have lost people, people whose beloved parents have died too soon, um, seem to have a propensity for coming up with arcane 
theories about how they can get those people back in one way or another. And the smarter those people are, the more elaborate and the more physically defensible those theories become just because they have more tools at their, at their, um, disposal. And I can't be sure, but I kind of suspect that I, I got the same sense when I was reading that from Tipler that there was somebody in his life that he wanted back, which, of, which of course is something that you can say about pretty much anybody on the planet at this point. Yeah. There's a line. Uh, so, so in your story, Ambassador, you have a character who was genetically engineered to be a sort of a, an astronaut, and they've tried to prune out all the human characteristics that would be counterproductive to that. And he says they tried to cut religion out of the mix, but God, it turns out, is born out of fear, and you can't get rid of religion without getting rid of the fear response. I was just mm -hmm. curious where that idea came from. Well, there's a. It's actually something I've played around with. Um, in a, a greater depth in, in some of my other works. At the time I wrote that, that, that story, geez, I wrote a version of that back in the 1980s. And it, at the time, it just seemed like something cool to say, something kind of edgy, right? I wasn't really basing it on any science. Turns out though, that there is a school of thought suggesting that the religious impulse does in fact hail from an ancient anti-predator response. It's, it's, we find, we find God in pareidolia, you know, that, that cognitive glitch that allows you to see faces in the clouds and Elvis in a burrito and that kind of <laughs> thing. Um, and that's essentially a kind of false positive pattern matching. And the, the way I like to put it in, I, I, I have a little parable in the, the, the one of the characters talks about in Echopraxia is that, which is, which is a, a novel of mine, uh, which is 50,000 years ago. There's these three guys on the African savanna and they each hear something rustling in the grass. And the first one thinks it's a tiger and he runs like hell and it is a tiger, but the guy gets away. And the second one thinks it's a tiger and he runs like hell, but it only turns out to be the wind and his friends all laugh at him for being such a chicken shit. And the third guy hears the sound and he just blows it off as the wind and a tiger has him for, for dinner. And this plays out, you know, a million times across a thousand generations. And pretty soon everybody is seeing tigers in the grass, even when there aren't any tigers, because the reproductive cost of being a chicken shit is less than the reproductive cost of making a false positive. So, natural selection, to put it simply, favors the paranoid. If you hear something that could be a predator, if you hear something that could be, that could represent agency, or it could represent randomness, it's always better to assume that it's representing agency. Because the worst that happens is people laugh at you because you ran from nothing. Um, if you, if you miss, if you make that kind of a mistake, but if you make the false negative mistake, you could get eaten by a predator and you find behavior of modern human beings is completely consistent with that. You can reduce cheating behavior on exams by putting a pair of eyes, a picture of a pair of eyes on the wall. And I'm not even talking a photorealistic pair of eyes. I'm talking a cheap ass. <laughs> Pencil sketch, Gary Larson, Farside kind of eyes. That reduces cheating behavior on exams. 
You can also reduce cheating behavior in psychological tests by just before the person starts the test, mention offhand that, that, um, oh, you know, there was a girl that was like killed 20 years ago and people say they can still see her ghost, you know, just down the hall. Um, this is in a university settings where most people are presumably not easily swayed by ghost stories and probably aren't consciously, but they still tend to be more honest when given the chance to cheat when primed with that kind of a sense of surveillance. Um, religious communities have longer lifespans than secular ones. And within religious communities, the one that la the ones that last longest are those that believe in an evil surveillance God that's always got its eye on you and sees you every time you masturbate and has high exit costs and high entrance costs and, and makes you like sacrifice your son, that kind of thing. Old Testament evil handmaid's tale type gods. Those are the communities that tend to have statistically the longest uh, life cycles when society, when, when there are times of social unrest, when people are feeling awkward and ill at ease and afraid, uh, belief in religion, belief in astrology goes up. People will see patterns in, in random visual static in which there are statistically no patterns, but people will be more likely to see patterns in that static if they themselves are feeling afraid. So we are wired to believe that things are watching us. We are wired to believe that there is, that there is always something in the grass. And from that, it's a very small jump to go to faces in the clouds. It's a very small jump to go to malign gods that you may not see, but they're responsible for everything. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, a whole suite of, to me, profoundly compelling, albeit circumstantial, bits of evidence and different studies that suggest that the religious impulse might have its its origins in an anti-predator response that we evolved, you know, millions of years ago. Isn't that a cool idea? Yeah, no, I think that is really interesting. And I, I, I think there is definitely a correlation between fearfulness and religiosity. And you certainly see in societies where people's fears are addressed more adequately in terms of, you know, a strong social safety net, people tend to be less religious. Um, but in terms of actually genetically engineering someone, I mean, do you think that if you genetically engineered someone to be without fear, that that person would of nece would necessarily be without religion too? That you couldn't have one without the other. That's a really interesting uh, question because there are, in fact, you know, people out there presumably with no sense of fear. I wonder if they're religious or not. Um, the thing is, I don't believe religion is a genetically coded um, phenomenon. I think religion is an emergent epigenetic phenomenon of other coded things. Like genes, they, they, there's no gene for this, that, or the other trait. A gene doesn't say, you know, build a wrinkle in your brain here. What a gene says is, you know, glial cells migrate. And then, you know, the glial cells will start. And then another gene will say, glial cells, stop. And then, you know, and so you've got the proliferation. It tell, genes tell things when to start growing, when to stop growing, when to move, when to go. And then the abutment of different body parts, one against the other, creates the superficial stuff like fingerprints and brain wrinkles and so on. Um, so I would be surprised if there was a religion, or if there was a religion gene, but I bet you there's probably a surveillance, you know, a suite of, of genetic things that that um, 
Well, you know what happens when you show cats cucumbers? You know those? Yeah, yeah. Those cats are, versus cucumbers. For a while, right? yeah. I'm pretty sure we've got something like that. I'm pretty sure we've got some kind of an instinctive threat response to be f- fearful of certain stimuli. Um, and that stuff's all buried down in the sub-basement. And then you got this shiny new neocortex laid over top of it that tries to rationalize those feelings. And so it tells itself stories. And the obvious story that keeps coming up time and time again is there is a God and God is making all of this happen because the universe can't be random. If we think the universe is random, we'll just blow off random stuff as the wind and might get eaten by tigers. <laughs> Let me ask you, uh, you know, earlier I mentioned your story, Flesh Made Word, and you said that you weren't too thrilled with it anymore and that you were surprised that Tachyon wanted to include it in the collection. I would have thought that the authors chose the stories for a collection. So I was just curious, how did that actually work in this case? Well, firstly, it's not like, you know, I'm not Stephen King. I, I, I'm still pathetically grateful that people want to publish <laughs> my stuff at all. So, so there's always a thought of, well, I don't want to be a difficult author. Um, you may not actually hear that. I, I, apparently I do have a reputation as a difficult author in some quarters, but, but, it's not ego driven. I'm always sort of, so if my, my general, um, mindset going into a relationship with a publisher is these guys do it for this for a living. They, you know, I, I may have my opinions, but they know the market way better than I do. I don't actually write for a market. Um, so I can be dubious. Um, but my initial reaction is going to always be, well, okay, you're the expert. And then if it, you know, if it later turns out, as has sometimes happened, that the readership at large says, wow, that was a really good collection, except for that crappy flesh-made word story. Um, at that point, I will feel a little more confident in my own opinion. And at future times, I will I'll perhaps be more likely to argue more forcefully. Um, that didn't happen in this case. Uh, I, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with Flesh Made Word. It was, but it was emo. And I, I like to be less emo than that now. You know, I, I wrote it in, in my younger days. Mm-hmm. Well, you, it's funny to me how, yeah, how self-deprecating you are. I mean, in one of the notes you say, you, you talk about any of the half dozen people who have read your novel Behemoth. Uh, do you, do you feel, well, I don't know. Oh, that's sorry, hardly being self-deprecating. Uh, Behemoth tanked big time. Um, well, but half, a half, a half dozen people, more, more than a half dozen people read it though, right? Well, yeah, but I mean, give me artistic license, right? <laughs> I, I can, I can use hyperbole or hypop, I guess it would be hypoboly, wouldn't it? Given that <laughs> I'm understating something. I have just neologized. I can use hypoboly without it necessarily being a reflection on the state of my ego. Um, I just like to use, you know, extreme terminology to make a point. Um, but yeah, Behemoth did tank and there were a lot of people who, who, um, uh, who found it, I guess, offensive or uncomfortable. Um, I personally did not want to write Behemoth at the time. I, I completely disagree with the people who object to it on ideological grounds. Um, but I had already written two books in that series and I actually wanted to write Blindsight after, after Maelstrom. Um, and I was, I was, I didn't have anything new to say in that universe yet. I could finish the story. I could tie up the loose ends. But in the previous books, I had introduced all sorts of new ideas with each volume. And I wanted to do that here. And I didn't feel that I had enough inspiration to do that with, with Behemoth. But my agent at the time said, Oh no, you should go with the, 
you should go with the uh, the tried and true method. And besides, this whole nature of consciousness thing, like like nobody's going to go for that. Uh, <laughs> so I kind of wrote Behemoth when I was feeling you know a little bit tired of that world and didn't have much more to say in it. Um, and it did it did tank for a number of. I think another one of the reasons it tanked was because Tor insisted on releasing it in two volumes, and tried not to tell anyone. Tor has a habit of doing this. I'm not the only person they've done it to. Um, they will take a book and they will market it as a novel. And then you get to the end of it and it will say, to be concluded in the next volume. And, and you can imagine how absolutely overjoyed readers are to have shelled out uh, money for a hardcover novel and then realize that they've only got half of the story. Um, so I, I think that might have had something to do with it too. Although I, I did insist on, this is one of the things that made me a difficult author, I guess. I did insist on putting an author's apology in the front of each volume saying, this is not a complete story. Beware. Um, but you know, I think there were a lot of reasons for Behemoth the Tank, but it did tank. And I'm not being, um, self-deprecating, uh, to, to acknowledge that. Um, if if anything, my my ego is, is is perhaps a little too much on the inflated side these days. Well, it's funny. I don't know if how if if you ever go to Reddit, there's a um a a, a topic on there called Print SF where people talk about science fiction in print form, novels, and so on. And I, I actually just did an AMA with those guys last week. Because because you're like a god on the Print SF. Reddit. I don't know if you if you're aware of this, but like anytime anyone asks for a, a recommendation for a book on any topic, people say blindsight. I mean, it's almost like a, a running joke over there. Which is why I have to say I was kind of surprised that that you wanted to talk about freeze frame and and beyond the rift. It was kind of refreshing. Um, yeah, no, I'm aware of that, and, and and you may have picked up me talking a little bit about how my ego might be a little too inflated at this moment. It's because. I do get a lot of love at Reddit, at Reddit, and and the the AMA. I, like I forgot even to tell anybody what time it was, <laughs> but people <laughs> showed up anyway, and and that's cool. I mean, I do I do enjoy that, and I am uh, heartened and gratified and ecstatic to know that my writing is reaching enough people that I can make a living at this. Um, that said. You know, I do see my royalty statements <laughs> and I am aware that, that, you know, while I seem to be doing okay at it now, you know, five years from now, I could be dumpster diving if the next book tanks. Um, there's not a lot of security in this gig. And, and that is probably just as well because it, it also helps make me a little more humble. Well, I was interested in talking about the freeze frame revolution because I'm always I want to talk to people about their newest books because I think they they're they're more interested to, usually in talking about the, whatever is new because you know it's not the same old questions about the things that they've been uh, asked about before. And I also really like talking about short story collections because you you get to see often the whole span of somebody's career and what their preoccupations have been over many many years, and I find that really interesting. Um, but I don't know. I could, I guess I could have talked about, would you have rather talked about? No, 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 no. I said, I, I said refreshing, right? <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's by all means, it's, it's, uh, have at it. Um, <laughs> hell, <laughs> you can, you can talk about my grocery list if you <laughs> want. 
Well, I mean, one story I want to talk about that I think is just awesome in this collection, it's called The Things. Could you talk about that story, how that came about? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm going to assume that um, everybody who is listening to this is already familiar with John Carpenter's um, movie, The Thing. And if you're not, I'm the kind of person that will unfriend you on Facebook and never talk to you again. <laughs> um it's always been a favorite movie, even when everybody was shitting on it and hating it when it first came out. I looked at it and I, I was, it was just so refreshing to see a movie in which, A, the people didn't act like idiots. Nobody sent anyone else to look out, to go off and, and search for the ship's cat all alone. <laughs> and B, the alien was smart as hell. I mean, chess is a motif that goes through this whole movie and, and, there's a reason for that, right? This entire, you know, the, the people are immediately thinking blood tests and the aliens ahead of them on that. And there's, this was an intelligent creature, an intelligent shape-shifting creature. Um, that said, there were some problems with the movie. Like, for example, um, it took place in 1982, and apparently in 1982, when you get a TRS-80, it comes preloaded with software to test the statistical probability of whether your friends have been turned into aliens. <laughs> um, that you kind of, you probably get that standard on any iPhone these days, but again, this was 1982. And where would you even get the data to make those kind of projections? It was a completely pointless, you didn't even need the scene. It was perfectly obvious what was going on. Um, and there was also just the question of the biology of the thing. Um, but I read a paper, which has since been sh shot upon. I mean, that's how science works, right? Somebody comes up with an idea and it gets out there and then other people kick it to death. And, and if it hasn't been killed by the time the dust clears, you gain a conditional acceptance. So I don't, I don't believe this particular paper, um, is going to go down in the annals of, of history as, as, you know, Darwin's spiritual, uh, kin, but, it was a story that suggested that what we are, and it's not a story, sorry, this is an actual theoretical paper, that suggested that what we are is life one point, or life 2.0. And that life 1.0 was cancer. And that cancer is in fact, that the cancer that we experience now is kind of a leftover vestige of this earlier iteration of life on planet Earth. And one of the reasons they, one of the things they cited for was that it, you know, this isn't just a mass of cells. It creates its own immune system. It creates its own vascular system to make sure that it's, you know, fed with blood and so on and so forth. And, but the, the, the question that really stuck in my mind from this paper was, you know, why doesn't Darwinian selection happen at the cellular level? You should have, you know, you should have cases where a cell somehow because of a mutation manages to suck up more oxygen and nutrients in the next cell or reproduce faster or, you know, the same survival of the fittest or survival of the least inadequate, I guess, processes that shape life should occur up the scale and down the scale. So why doesn't everything turn into cancer? Why doesn't and, you know, they had their own answers for this. And as I say, they were, you know, largely derided. But for me, I thought, wow, you know what that is? That's the thing. Maybe that's a mechanism for the shapeshifter to work. Maybe 
it's an assemblage of cells that are in constant competition with each other. And they enter battlefield alliances the same way that, say, algae and a sea anemone and a damselfish would, you know, but they're still separate entities. They still, you know, it's, it's, it's very ad hoc and it can change on a dime. And I thought, you know, that would be a great way to tell the story of the thing. And I could call it the things because this thing obviously has no idea of plurality. It is a colony through and through the idea of individuality. So the, the monsters are going to be these other things that are actually individual and cannot merge and cannot take communion. And I will call it the things. And so it started off as this kind of a love letter to one of my favorite movies. Um, in which I took the opportunity to retcon some of the stuff that was dumb about one of my favorite movies and, and tried to sort of, you know, have the computer scene make sense and so on. And then about two thirds of the way through, I realized, and here comes the Bible again, sorry, holy shit, I'm really writing a story about the missionary impulse. The idea of this thing that makes everything else over in its own image and honestly believes that what it's doing is good for the other guy. That's what missionaries do. And so all of a sudden it became this kind of a weird political subtext. And although I usually kind of hate ideological pieces, I'm giving myself a pass on this one because that's not what I was trying to write. It just turned out at the end that it made a really kind of a good metaphor for that. So... I'm really fond of the things. I think it, it, it works on about three different levels that I wasn't expecting it to. It's, it's a better story than I had any right to write at that point. Cause I, I don't know if I have chops to pull off something like that consistently. And it nearly didn't get published because the guys who'd commissioned it wouldn't buy it unless I wrote a contract basically saying that if Universal came after them, um, I, I, they, they could hang me out to dry. They, they would be willing to share in the income, but they would not share in the risk. And I had to, because obviously I cannot say that this is an original story. Um, so there were whole issues of fair use and copyright infringement and so on. And, and this is not to shit on those guys. They had, you know, the editor has, uh, he's published other stuff of mine and he's an awesome guy. And, uh, he couldn't get, he couldn't swing things with the publishers. Um, so finally it was, uh, Neil Clark of Clark's World who was willing to take the, the the chance and we sort of worked out, hammered together this contract that, you know, basically said, yeah, if we, we will hang together or we will hang separately, but we're going to do this. And not only did it do well, but I have it on pretty good authority that most of the surviving people who actually made the original movie are aware of the things and like it because Simon Pegg sent me an email telling me that he knew all these guys and he had shared it with them and everybody thought it was awesome. And it's been over 10 years. No, maybe it's been eight or nine years now. It came out in 2010, eight years. And no dead-eyed suits from Universal have come knocking at my door yet. And it's been reprinted and translated a jillion times. So I think I'm in the clear. I think I can talk about it. Yeah, no, like I said, I, I just thought it was phenomenal. And I th one thing that I... One reason, one of the reasons I really like it is because you know the um, uh, the the movie The Thing is based on a short story by John W. Campbell called Who Goes There, 
And one right. of the things that John W. Campbell said to writers, to, to his to science fiction writers for his magazine, is said is he said, Give me something that thinks as well as a man, but not like a man. And I think this story does as good a job of anything I've ever read of getting inside the head of something that's as smart as a person, but thinks differently than a person. Well, thank you. No, I, 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 when it first came out, I didn't know whether it was going to fly or not. It, it seemed too much of it to me at the time seemed like the thing wandering around in the snow, info dumping to itself. Um, when you're close, and I, I always think that my stuff is too info dumpy, and I think sometimes it probably is, but, but when you're in the middle of writing, it takes you like, you know, an hour to write a paragraph. And so you, you, I guess you have this gut feeling that it's also going to take the reader an hour to read it. So you're thinking, oh my God, this is an info dump that goes on for an hour. Whereas really it's an info dump that goes on for 15 seconds. <laughs> um, so when it first came out, I didn't know how it was going to fly, but the, the, uh, the audience reaction was just phenomenal. I, I can't believe how much love it has got over the years um, and how many fans it has found. In fact, when I was, when I was um, on trial in the United States, uh, after I had, um, after the judge had basically said, you're the kind of guy I'd like to have a beer with. Here's a small fine. And be on your way. And all the the thugs from the border patrol got up and huffed out. And I ended up in this elevator going down to finances to pay my small fine before I could leave the U.S. forever. Um, there's this big, mean-looking, bald-headed dude standing next to me in the in the elevator, and he turns to me and he looks down at me, and he says, "I don't know if." You just did this whole thing just to draw attention to your work or whatever. But, you know, I read one of your things online the other day. I think it was called The Things. He said, that was awesome. <laughs> that was fucking awesome. And it turns out this guy's a lawyer. I didn't know. I thought he was a biker or something. Maybe he was both. But, yeah, I mean, that story gets love in the weirdest places, even in the the courthouse of Port Huron. Well, I feel like for people who might not know that story, that might require a little bit of explanation, what you were doing in the, the courthouse. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, in the, the, um, and this was back during the, the halcyon days of the, uh, uh, the Obama administration too. In the, the, uh, in the state of Michigan, it is a felony to ask what the problem is after you have been punched in the face by border guards. um, Apparently, what you have to do is unthinkingly comply to every command. And um, this particular uh, felony spends, or this the, the, the statute, if you look at the statute, it spends three paragraphs describing what a person is. It does not spend any time at all defining what a lawful command is. And it puts everything from asking what's the problem to attacking someone with a chainsaw under the rubric of the same damn felony. So basically what happened was um, we got stopped. I was helping a friend move to, uh, to Nebraska and we were driving. I was driving back afterwards and we got pulled over 
a couple of kilometers from the Canadian border. It was not something you expect. You expect to be stopped by the officials of the country that you are entering, not the officials of the country that you're leaving. But that seemed kind of weird. And then they started doing, I mean, there was some, you know, the standard customs official belligerence and their inability to have a sense of humor or to smile at any of my jokes. And then they started doing some things that I'm pretty sure violated their own protocols. Like they started going through um, our luggage without asking me. Like they're generally supposed to say, you know, can we do this? This is in the um, trunk in, fact, in the trunk of your car. They're like opening up your bag. yeah, yeah. And and in fact, in the you know the the guy who was the the the, the head honcho of that particular installation, you know, said in in specific reference to my particular case, told the papers, yes, of course, there are these protocols that we follow. Blah, blah, blah. Um, of course, this was after I'd already been maced and, and punched out, but but I was pretty sure that this stuff was not kosher. So I got out of the car because the person who had been interrogating me had moved away from the car and I didn't want to shout. Uh, and that was the point at which everything went south. Um, so basically everybody piled on me and there was pepper spray and, and, uh, they basically were looking for jail time for this. Uh, they never found any, um, they never found any contraband or anything in the vehicle because, of course, there wasn't any. Um, but they had to charge me with something. And, uh, yeah, there was a, a point at which, like, I saw the pepper spray coming and I kept my eyes closed because I knew it was going to happen. And this was something that came up in my trial. I must have been on, on meth or something because... You know, they'd sprayed me with pepper spray and I did not curl up into a little ball and start sobbing. And, you know, my face was burning. My chest was, my, most of my body was burning, but I had at least seen the stuff coming to close my eyes. So I didn't react perhaps as, as cravenly as they expected me to. Um, and a few minutes later, I was like, you know, they had me up against this wall and I was literally starting to choke on an overproduction of mucus. My hands were behind my back. I couldn't blow my nose. Uh, I asked them to blow my nose for me. They refused. So I started just horking as much as I could so that I wouldn't choke on this overproduction of mucus. At that point, I was told that if any of the snot from my, you know, and at this point, my eyes are still closed. I didn't know where anybody was. Uh, if any of the snot from my nose touched anybody else, I would also be charged with assault. Um, so it was a, it was a good time all around. Um, so I was charged with a felony. They went for jail time. They didn't get any jail time. It's two years they were um, looking for, right? Sorry? Two years they were looking for? Yeah. In fact, there was a there was a time in 1991 when I was in Guelph, starting a postdoc, Guelph in Ontario, in Canada, where I turned right on a red light while riding a bicycle without coming to a complete stop at 2 o'clock in the morning at a deserted intersection. And a cop car pulled me over and wanted to see my ID, and I was all, I'm riding a bicycle, what if I don't have ID? So I got hauled in that night too, but it was a, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't even convicted, it was like a conditional discharge, and it was, you know, it was, it was such a trivial, it was such a trivial offense that when we went searching for it afterwards, we couldn't find any record of it in the Canadian legal system, the Canadian court system. Uh, and in fact, I've just undergone an RCMP background check for, for something related. And the RCMP 
comes back. I'm completely clean. I have no record at all in Canada for doing anything whatsoever out of the ordinary or even marginally illegal. Somehow, the Department of Homeland, well, the Department of Homeland Security came up and, 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 um, and interviewed me and interviewed, um, my, my passenger. And they both decided they didn't want to be, or they, they decided they didn't want to touch this with a 10 foot pole. This was the, I guess it was the local border guards who'd brought him in, and they basically told the border guards they were on their own, but the border guards decided they wanted to press charges anyway. So I guess it was the border guards, not DSH or DHS, um, that was doing the investigation. But they somehow found out about me turning right on a red light um, on a bicycle at 2 in the morning in Guelph uh, 20 years earlier. And they tried to use that to have me classed as a repeat offender. Because when you're a repeat offender, they get to double the uh, the penalty. So, yeah. Good thing I wasn't uh, crossing with any children in tow, huh? <laughs> uh, but it sounds like like the jury was on your side and the judge was on your side in kind of interesting ways. Well, the jury... Um, one member of the jury, with whom I, I still basically consider myself a friend... Um, voted to convict. She was the last holdout. A number of others didn't want to convict. But basically what it came down to was um, the way the law was written, I was guilty. You're not supposed to ask questions. And I was guilty of a felony. And the um, the prosecution had pulled all sorts of sleazy shit. They had this uh, semi-video, basically a series of snapshots taken five seconds apart, which was the only surveillance they had of the issue. And they tried to play it at twice normal speed so that it looked like that, or they're, sorry, at half normal speed, so that it looked like I had been stalling, that I had not complied in a, you know, we managed to sort of stop that. But it was, it was, it was a gong show from the beginning. And the jury, I think, recognized it as such. And from what I've understood, there was a lot of, you know, we don't want to find him guilty because this is just basically letting the dogs off the leash. But then it's, you know, it's not really our decision whether the law is good or not. We have to follow the law as written. So that was what happened. And the interesting thing was that after they all voted to convict, a few of them wrote letters to the judge on my behalf saying, this is bullshit. And this, the judge had never seen this before. And one of these people actually showed up with me at my sentencing hearing to stand at my side. Um, and was subsequently subjected to a series of home invasions by the police. She was marched down. At one point, she was, she was arrested for, um, an armed robbery on, um, one of those check cashing places where security footage showed a middle-aged man with a beard. And she was even uh, arrested for that. Uh, she would come home and find that her kids had been frog-marched down. And basically, uh, at one point, I ended up taking some of the money that was left over from my defense fund and paying her her mortgage for a month or two because she had to pay, she had to hire lawyers basically, or they were and, and they didn't have enough money left over to to um, to to pay to pay for their mortgage. So. And I'm sure this had absolutely nothing to do with the fact that she had publicly come out in my favor or on my side. 
Um, but it was the same police department, apparently, that did all this shit to her. And as far as I know, uh, she was harassed ruthlessly, like basically with cop cars sitting outside her house, just looking in at her, um, for over a year subsequent to, to those events. Um, so yeah, our boys in blue, gotta love them. Uh, is that ongoing or is it kind of calmed down? I haven't heard that it's, I haven't heard anything recently, so I don't think it's ongoing anymore. Um, she's been in touch now and then over other things and has never mentioned, um, anything to, you know, anything along those lines. Um, I certainly wouldn't go down to check firsthand, even if I was allowed back into your country at this point. You say in the book, uh, you say half the internet came to your aid. Could you talk about that? Yeah. Oh, it was, uh, I mean, at the time I didn't know I was isolated. I was in this, this jail where the, I was in this holding cell where the, uh, the movie, the TV was tuned to, uh, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and there was no remote control to turn <laughs> it off, which is, you know, verging on a war crime right there. <laughs> um, and I had no, you know, of course, the phone companies get to just absolutely screw you over when you're in jail because there's you have no other option. So you, you basically get charged $10 a minute to your credit card. Um, I was alone. Nobody, I figured nobody knew where I was. Nobody knew I was in there. And, and even if they did, what were they going to do? What was Caitlin going to do? My, she was my girlfriend at the time. She's my wife now. Um, and as it turned out, <laughs> Caitlin called Dave Nickel, who was the head of the press gallery at the time for the, the local uh, Toronto concert. Dave Nickel is also a, a, an awesome, uh, writer. Um, and he called our mutual friend, Corey Doctorow. I'm pretty sure you've heard of Corey Doctorow. Yeah, yeah, sure. I've interviewed him on the show, yeah. Yeah, I know. So, so Corey, of course, has hordes, legions of fans, millions of strong. So he went on a boing boing. Um, as it turns out, I have kind of a, a kibble fund for, for people who want to like give me extra money on my website. So that was already in place. Um, and, and, you know, people from, uh, J. Michael Straczynski to, to, uh, Neil Gaiman, you know, neither of whom I've met, none of whom I know just basically started speaking out and sending money to my legal defense fund. And there was just this huge, um, I guess outpouring of support. And there was a huge outpouring of hatred also from, from, um, the other side of the fence, there were a lot of law and order types out there who were absolutely convinced that I must have done something to deserve it because, you know, police just don't do that. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's scary to think that here I am, this helpless, white, privileged guy. I, I, I know the term privilege has been overused, but it's hard not to use the term when you're in a jail cell with, you know, 300 other people and they're all black. Um, and these guys didn't offer a plea bargain. These guys just wanted to see me go down and I didn't have any money to, to hire a lawyer. I was, I was screwed. And then all of a sudden, as I, as I said, half the internet wakes up. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Catherine Kramer. Thank you. Thank you, Scalzi. Thank you. All these people with, much bigger names and far more cred than I'll ever have speaking out for me. And 
as it turns out, I didn't have to pay a penny for my own defense. But it was an expensive damn defense for, for an offense which, as even the prosecutor admitted in her closing statements, basically amounts for me not, in, not getting on the ground fast enough when I've been told to get on the ground fast enough after I've been punched in the face. And that was like a $65,000 court case. And if it had not been for the fact that I know important and influential people, I would be both in jail at this point and probably broke for the rest of my life. Um, and it's weird to say you're lucky when you have been <laughs> victims of a miscarriage of justice, but you also can't go through something like that without realizing that I am the victim of a miscarriage of justice. And there are so many shitloads of people out there who are repeatedly victims of chronic and ongoing miscarriages of justice, and there is nobody paying their court bills. And it's a scary, scary... I gotta say, dude, I don't like your country. Like, I nearly died of flesh-eating disease a, a year or so after that. And, and that's something else that I literally came within 90 minutes of being dead. And I had in-home care. I had two weeks in intensive care. They scraped out my leg. I had a, a nurse that sort of visited. I had a $30,000 gore slurping thing stuck on my, on my chest, uh, for, for six months. The total bill I paid for that was $12 for half of a set of crutches. And again, if I had been in, if I had been in the U.S., I would have again been broke for the rest of my life. Um, the prospect scares the shit out of me. Yeah, well, you're certainly not going to get any argument from me on, on any of those points. Um, I'm curious, when when all these people were supporting you, was that valuable just in terms of fundraising for your legal defense? Or was there, do people, do like the judge or the prosecutors, do they care about bad publicity or are they not, do they not care about what's going on on the internet? I had, because I'm not your average, I'm not the average kind of person that shows up in the Port Huron courthouse. So I had a, a fair number of qualified, you know, I had university professors, I had lawyers who are friends of mine, I had, you know, again, the head of the press gallery, I had people who counted for something, um, who would stand up for me and who wrote letters of reference and so on. And I think that impressed the judge. I think it doesn't impress the average juror. Fortunately, they didn't have a say in that. It certainly didn't impress the the prosecutor. Really interesting story. While we were preparing for trial, my lawyer and I were in a hotel room and we were on a voice conference with somebody from the jury project. And they started talking about how they were going to handle the fact that I was a doctor. And it took me about five minutes to clue in because they were treating this as though it was a bad thing. And all of a sudden, I realized that it was a bad thing. They were worried because the prosecution was going to go out of their way to call me Dr. Watts. And the mere fact that I had a doctor would be enough to poison me in the eyes of your average jury. It had never occurred to me before, but that was... It was such a an obvious fact to them that they never even bothered cluing me in until I said, wait a second, are you saying? Um, 
So they actually devoted part of this strategy session to how are we going to deal with the fact that the prosecution is going to call him Dr. Watts. And sure enough, the first thing out of the prosecutor's mouth when she started winning a cross-examination was, well, Dr. Watts. And it was like, wow, having an education makes you hateable, at least in Michigan. And given this person from the jury project was talking to us from California, I'm guessing throughout wide swaths of the U.S., being educated is, in the eyes of your average juror, a crime in and of itself somehow. So make of that what you will. In the book, you say that you're not you're not allowed back in the U.S. and you say maybe ever. Are you uh, are you trying to get that overturned or something, or do you have any desire to ever come back to the United States? Well, there's a you had I had to wait for five years before I could sort of appeal to have the thing overturned, and six years went by and I had absolutely no desire to return. Um, but then I started getting some some interest in, you know, movie and TV right adaptations for some of my stuff. And one of those deals, one of the more promising ones, it has since fallen through as they all tend to do. Um, but one of the more promising deals involved having me write the screenplay and actually being involved as one of the writers of the series. Um, but that would involve me having to be able to fly down regularly to LA. So under those circumstances, I grudgingly, you know, hired an immigration lawyer and we started working on this stuff. And the package came through. And one of the things that uh, they wanted as part of the package was something called a letter of remorse. And they even um, gave me a template about, you know, beat by beat, the kind of thing I should put in my letter of remorse, how... When I was young and foolish, I had made some silly mistakes and that I was haunted with regret for the mistakes I had made ever since, but that since I had tried to turn my life around and that I had joined my church and that I had grown married and I had three wonderful children and that I, I, you know, coached basketball in my spare time and, and I outright refused to do this. Um, but what I did write was a letter of contempt. <laughs> which followed it beat by beat, um, but essentially said other things. <laughs> um, uh, who was that guy who, who, um, you remember that guy who was hunting with Dick Cheney and Dick Cheney shot him in the face? <laughs> and then he yeah. actually went on TV to apologize for Dick Cheney, for the trouble he'd caused Dick Cheney when Dick Cheney shot him in the face. I've forgotten the guy's name, but I cited him in the thing. In the, in the spirit of that great American, blah, 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 <laughs> who, after being shot in the face by then President, Vice President Dick Cheney, uh, went on to apologize for that. Let me say that I sincerely regret having any cause to want to return to your country ever again. And that if you grant me the ability to do this, I promise I will not stay any longer than I have. And that was, that was at the end of, of, you know, another, I kind of went on and it's kind of a shame that I can't just, Post the PDF. Anyway, uh, efforts kind of stalled at that point. The <laughs> offer fell through and, uh, I still haven't sent off the package. I've still got the package and it's, it's a wonder to behold. 
my immigration lawyer advised me very strongly not to write the letter of contempt. He said that the entire office that, that, that he works in was absolutely in stitches and loved it and thought it was absolutely amazing, but perhaps I should be more humble. But I honestly don't see why I should apologize for asking what's going on after I've been punched in the face. I'm sorry. It just, you know, basically the, the argument is these people don't care about the facts of the case. What they care about is that I grovel. And yeah, no, I'm sorry. That's not going to happen. So I may still submit the package at some point. In fact, I expect to within the next few weeks. Um, but I don't expect it to go anywhere. And I'm certainly not going to, you know, bend a knee to these assholes. So that job, that writing job in L.A., that was going to be to adapt uh, one of your books into a TV show? Yeah, a couple of them. But again, you know, it, nothing, nothing happened. It was, I mean, I saw the, um, I saw the, uh, the offer. It was an actual written, uh, and I said, yeah, okay, let's go ahead with this. And a few months later, I asked my agent, so what happened with that? Oh, that fell through. That's just the way it is. So, you know, stuff happens. It comes, it goes. Maybe someday it'll happen. <laughs> Maybe someday somebody will make a video game out of the sunflower cycle. <laughs> but, um, in the meantime, I'm surviving on, you know, non-TV royalties, so I guess I can, I guess I can't complain. It says in your bio that a couple of big video games have kind of credited you for inspiration. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, the one Bioshock installment that I have not played, um, Infinite? what was the one that came in after, after the original, there's Bioshock, Bioshock Infinite, and there's one in between, was that Bioshock Rapture? Oh, anyway, sure. that would apparently makes explicit reference to being influenced by by Blindsight. Um, there's a game called Soma, which which claims to be heavily influenced by my stuff, my my ruminations on consciousness, among, amongst other people, you know, Philip Dick and so on, and Greg Egan. Um, although it starts off actually in my hometown, it's kind of interesting watching the kid, the character in in this game, go by my subway stops. <laughs> um, yeah, no, there's, there's been a bunch of, a bunch of games that have, uh, that have claimed to have been inspired or, or, um, influenced by my writing, which is, you know, really flattering. And then there have been other games that I've actually sort of been approached to work on. And, uh, none of them have ever, none of the ones I've worked on have ever actually gone to market. But, uh, wow, they sure pay well in the games industry. <laughs> Do you have any other uh, any other projects in the works or anything that you want to mention? Oh, well, I'm I'm part of a team that's working on um a black metal science opera for the Norwegian government that's mm. uh all about sending marbled lungfish to Mars in a post-dystopian uh environment of forced vegetarianism. <laughs> um and that's been that's sort of been a going concern for the past few years. It'll probably be uh um It'll probably premiere in its final form in 2020. They play pretty good too, the Norwegians. Um, uh, unfortunately, because it's a science opera, it's like both black metal, which, you know, Norway is like the world heavy, the world black metal capital. There's Norwegian black metal artists who go, literally go around burning down churches and so on. Um, so there's that. It's kind of that kind of music combined with kind of classical opera. Um, but it also has to be 
scientifically plausible. And so we have a guy called Carl Pennepacker, who I don't know if you know the name, but he's one of the co-discoverers of dark energy. And he is, uh, one of the things he does is check the physics to make sure everything's... And he's constantly screwing up my story because I have this great scene where a micrometeorite strike knocks out the ship on its way to Mars. And there's this great scene, very operatic, where basically everybody has to saw off their own legs and eat their own legs to keep them starving to death en route to Mars. And good old Dr. Pennypacker woke up one night with this inspiration for, for a light sail propulsion system where you basically put a bunch of lasers on the Atacama Desert and you can get a ship to Mars in like four days. And you don't see this, you know, on the NASA websites. You can Google it. You can read the technical reports. Nobody's talking about getting a ship to Mars in four days or, you know, even two weeks. Um, but he's figured out this technology and now he has a couple of postdocs working on it. <laughs> So, and you can't justify sawing off and eating your own leg if you're only four days away from <laughs> rescue, right? So, we've been going back and forth on this, and we're trying to make it scientifically, um, trying to make it scientifically plausible. Uh, but he wants to make it scientifically cutting edge, and I'm trying to make it operatic. And you know, at some point, maybe I'll create a character who's a who's a, a cosmological physicist and he'll be forced to eat somebody's leg in a story of mine or something. I don't know. <laughs> so anyhow, yeah, I'm doing that. And the next book is uh, Intelligent Design, which is a near-future techno-thriller about sapient money and genetically engineered giant squids. And then after that, I'm going to be uh, finishing off the the um, blindsight echopraxia sequence with a book called Omniscience, assuming I can get anybody to buy the damn thing. Actually, I haven't even pitched Intelligent Design to anyone either. I'm just writing these books on the assumption that somebody will buy them. But um, for for the first time in my life, I actually have enough money stored up that I can afford to write a book and send it off when I feel it's ready, not when it's due contractually. So I'm hoping that I will be able to write better books as a result of this. But we'll see. So far, I've just written one and a half chapters of a book that's not really that much better. And because I'm not, I don't have a deadline, I tend to sit around and masturbate a lot. So there is a double-edged sword having, you know, having that kind of freedom. Okay, so we're at uh, almost two hours, so I think we're going to have to start wrapping this up. Uh, <laughs> okay. But you, I have to say, Peter, you are a very interesting guy. I didn't even get to really talk about the flesh-eating disease. Um, so I think that's quite striking that, you know, that I can talk to you for almost two hours and not even get to the flesh-eating disease because there's so much other stuff to talk about in addition to that. So, uh, I don't know, maybe sometime we'll have well, you Well, you on. blew your chance now, dude, because if you, uh, you know, probably another two weeks the way this thing is going, something else will kill me. <laughs> and uh, and you'll have lost your chance to put it all down for posterity. Well, at least, I mean, I got to talk to you for two hours. So, if you die in the next yeah. two weeks, I mean, I got, I got, you know, two hours, that's not bad, you know. No, two hours is awesome. And then imagine you're going to have to cut it down by about 50 or 60% um, just for space limitations. Am I right? No, I'll see what I can do. I mean, I usually do edit these, but um, I don't know. I, I don't I don't know that I'll edit a ton out of this. I'll have to see in, in the process. But uh, I guess people uh, listening to this, they can check the uh, the time and see how, how much got edited out. But um, no, I thought this was well, all good stuff. So uh, and I, I want to thank you. Just, just to let you know, if, you know, if, if, 
I go on for a 10 minute monologue and I see it reduced to 30 seconds, I will not blame you at all. <laughs> and I don't want to thank you for, for just spending so much time talking to me. I really appreciate that. Well, I, I want to thank you for, for taking an interest. You know, us, us, uh, us writers are sort of attention whores with fragile egos. So, so believe me, this was, this was no uh, imposition on me at all. <laughs> all right. Great. So yeah. So let's wrap this up there. And so we've been speaking with Peter Watts about his books Beyond the Rift and The Freeze Frame Revolution. So, Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for your interest. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Peter Watts for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Teresa, who just made a very generous contribution to the show via PayPal. Teresa writes, Thanks for all the great episodes. You always pick interesting topics and have great guests. Keep up all the good work, and make sure you always know where your towel is and stay hoopy. So big thanks again to Teresa and to everyone else who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.